Hello everyone, you're listening to the Player Larry Podcast. I am your host, Ivan Alexiev, and today I've got with me Aaron West, who is an amazing uh, designer. He's one of the designers for Catacombs, and he is also a publisher. He's CEO at Elzra Games, and this conversation is very, very interesting, and I recommend that you listen to it, especially if you're planning on making or you're in the process of making a dexterity game uh, because their Catacombs line, uh, I think in 2010, it won Most Innovative Game of the Year, and you should definitely check it out. Um, it's You're flicking discs in a fantasy setting, and it's it's dungeon crawling with, uh, with flicking discs. It's amazing. Um, but in this conversation... We talked a lot about uh, publishing as well because he is really like a master at his craft as a publisher. Uh, we got to talk about their new upcoming Kickstarter called Monster Pit. They actually uh, launched it for uh, a day or two and they, they had to cancel. So they, they're relaunching it uh, soon. So you can be on the lookout for that. That's Catacombs Monster Pit. And uh, he gave some really good advice about uh, becoming a publisher and uh, pitching to publishers because he's uh, taken a lot of pitches from designers. Um, and just on a whole, I think you will really enjoy this conversation. I sure did. And thank you so much for listening. today who is one of the designers of catacombs and he also runs elzra games uh how are you aaron i keep well thanks to start this off can i ask you about your gaming background what you got, what got you into games in the first place uh i think it was probably uh some friends who had some warhammer miniatures and they wanted someone to play with so they had these miniatures and uh, you know, we, we sat down and, uh, you know, figured out how it all worked. And uh, on the other side of it, um, there were some role-playing type games as well. Turns out it wasn't Dungeons and Dragons. It was uh, some other, some other, um, uh, you know, g- games of that type mm-hmm. that we, that we, that we played. And um, I, I didn't actually play Dungeons and Dragons until recently. Uh, a few years ago, but uh, no, 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 that would uh, that would be the, the the starting point, I would say. And there were some collectible card games. There was one collectible card game. I don't think it's available anymore, but that was one that um, I I got into and played a, a few a few years later. But again, it wasn't Magic. It was I was familiar with Magic, but we ended up with this other one instead. Mm-hmm. And how long after you started playing games did you get into um, designing catacombs and get the the first ideas for that? Oh, it was a good few years later because first of all, um, there was a, a, a transition eventually to uh, the, the hobby games, and another friend of mine uh, who had known for a number of years, who became one of the, the original co-designers of first and second edition of Catacombs, he introduced our group to some of these tabletop games. Um, And of course, since that time, there's been an explosion of these games being released. 
but there were relatively few of them back back then, and uh, many of them had uh, were oriented towards fantasy. You know, for example, uh, you know, Game of Thrones, Twilight Imperium, uh, Talisman, these 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 types of uh, the Shadow Vampires. Uh, those the the early version of that one, for example, they just did the new new edition of it. This this sort of these these types of games to start with. And you released yeah. the first uh, edition of Catacombs in 2010, right? Yeah, that's right. In 2010, yep. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, we but we'd been working on it for over a year, uh, obviously before its release, uh, because frankly we didn't know what we were doing, um, and we were. We succeeded in making an, a number of mistakes along the way, mm-hmm. so that's uh, you know that's um, the way it went. Something that I, I really no- noticed with Catacombs, it almost immediately won uh, quite a few awards for it. Right, uh, I think most innovative game um, for 2010 from Dice Tower, and it got quite a bit of recognition. But then for the next edition, you decided to really change around the artwork and atmosphere of the game because it, the, the first edition was quite dark and um, you went with a more like colorful and it, maybe a bit like sillier would be a way to describe it. Um, how did you decide on making that like stylistic choice? Well, it really just happened organically. Uh, we um, noticed some uh, stickers by Quan Chai that had been posted online and I, I liked what he was doing, and we had some initial conversations. And then when I decided that I would proceed with third edition and put it on Kickstarter, um, we, there was an opportunity there to change the, the tone of the game, change the style of the game, come up with something new, different, hopefully innovative, fresh again. And that... You know, Quan Chai and I had another discussion and really started working together. And that's how third edition um, w- w- was born. It was a very natural and organic process, I would say, because, you know, we I wanted to move forward in the industry and Quan Chai wanted to get really started in the industry. So it was very natural for us to want to work together and we had good chemistry and you know, we were, um, you know, I really sort of gave him pretty free reign to imagine the characters the way that he, he, he wanted to. So, you know, he took, he had his initial stickers and then he was able to, to go from there and to really build it out the way he would, he would like. Tell me about the process of what publishing that first game was like and how different it was um, 10 years ago. First publishing first and second edition, or publishing third edition? Uh, first, first and second edition, and just getting into the industry. And what, what what was your like background before that? My background um, was in software development, and it remained in software development for a number of years. So I had a software company on the side. Um, and I kind of say that, but I mean that was the, the, sort of the main thing. And then eventually, games just crowded all of that out, and I had the opportunity to um, g- get out of software and transition into tabletop games full time. And I decided to to do that. And a lot of my software development background informs how I run the company. 
because we really think of it as being like a digital process, but we just happen to output to cardboard at the end. So it's very digital. There's an algorithm there, if you like, just like you would have if you were to be writing a piece of software. Um, so we have that uh, thought process, if you like, and then it just so happens that the the, the components emerge and are, you know, are realized according to some of the limitations of physical components. Um, so that was my original background, but the um, when we, we were really looking to do first and second edition, there there wasn't the same de- degree of interaction that you can have now with the factories. Uh, communi- communicating with the factories was a felt like a fairly exotic process. You had these people on the other side of the planet. Of course, the, there was the internet, obviously, but um, you didn't necessarily have the opportunity to meet with them face-to-face and to speak with them. Um, it, it was all done um, uh, o- over email. There may be some calls as well, but in terms of being able to sit down with someone, say, at a, at a, at a trade show, many of the factories now are represented at the various uh, trade shows. Uh, you know, you and I have spoken before in the past. You've been to Spiel. Mm-hmm. You, you've walked. You've walked the halls of Spiel, and a lot of the the, the, the major factories are there, right? You can just walk up to them. Um, you know, they're in brightly colored T-shirts. You can speak to them, and you know, it's it's a very much much easier really to to deal with people once you've, um, you know, once you've once you've seen them. Um, so anyway, uh, that, that was something that was very different. Of course, you know, the crowdfunding aspect of it, very different as well. Uh, when we got started, uh, we had to be pretty conservative with our print run size. And we were, we were financing it all ourselves. And, you know, I've said this before. I mean, we had, we had no expectations for how this thing was going to go when we put out first and second edition catacombs. We just literally just released it. And we really thought that, you know, we're going to have a whole load of these things in the basement. And every year for the rest of our lives, we're going to be trying to give them away at Christmas. Well, you know, it was. <laughs> so. That's what happens to some publishers. <laughs> that's, the, that's the truth of it. Uh, it, it is. Yeah. So, you know, we're very, um, you know, we're very uh, grateful um, uh, for the fact that, you know, there was pretty much instant recognition it's sort of felt that way. I don't, you know, we weren't necessarily, um, you know, really paying attention to it. We just were doing it. So we were right in the, 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 the guts of doing it, learning how to do it, but we didn't really, so we weren't really sort of looking around, uh, thinking, well, are, are people really paying attention to this? We, we saw one of Tom Vassell's early video reviews that he did. And I was like, oh, that's cool. Right. People are obviously looking at it. Um, but beyond that, you know, it was it was a uh, it was a surprise when it uh, received some of those awards, and we were very uh, obviously very pleased, but and ver- and very uh, very grateful for that. Mm-hmm. So you were funding the whole thing uh, yourselves for the first print run. That's correct. Yeah. yeah. Now, how, how big was your team? Was it just your like game group? I know it's it's listed as like uh, four designers for the um, Catacombs First Edition on. Board Game Geek. 
Yeah, it was, uh, th- there was three of us. Um, th- th- there was Mark, Ryan, and myself. And we were all um, yeah, doing different tasks. Uh, but because I had um, uh, run you know, businesses before, I was doing, uh, you know, I was involved in, I'm just saying, participating in the uh, design work, but was really involved more in the business development side of it and kind of getting it all going and on off the ground and kind of seeking out the industry contacts and all that sort of thing. So, um, yeah, it was definitely a, a collaborative effort in, in, in um, you know, really shaping, you know, what, what the product became and some of the choices that we made um, back when we really had no idea what we were doing, uh, you know, has still informed the, the product to today. You know, the, the, some of those choices are, are still there. We talked about this last time, but I think you're the the only uh, publisher who only does dexterity games. Um, could you tell me what are the sort of drawbacks and the um, positive aspects of um, a dexterity game? Well, there's obviously, uh, in a way, um, you know, it's it's different enough that you're you know, meaning that by playing a dexterity game, it's different enough that you automatically put yourself into a niche that can be different from other conventional tabletop games. So there is that aspect to it. Um, but it means to say as well that you're thinking about the physics of the components and how the components will interact um, as they move around, sometimes independently. And these are some of the challenges that you just don't have in a in a, in a conventional game. Like if I put a meeple on a square in a conventional game, it's not going to move. And it's not going to, unless I'm clumsy, it's not going to really affect anything else that's on the board. But in a dexterity game, especially the way something like a catacombs is structured, those um, that decision, that input, if you like, of me, say, ex- executing a single flick, as we would say, on a, on a piece, it completely affects it has the capacity to potentially affect the entire game state. So all of the, all of the pieces that are, that have a capacity to be put into motion, just like in a game of pool or billiards or snooker, that's a, that's an interesting aspect to the whole game design process because that, that state can change from turn to turn. Mm Mm-hmm. And uh, how do you go about uh, playtesting games? Well, there's a, obviously a lot of playtesting, and we have to have a sense about um, you know the, the skill level of the players. So I really have to consider people that are just getting started and may not be as practiced with the mechanics of, of one of our games. Um, versus those that are experienced players. And you, you, you tend to develop that skill over time. Uh, like when we were initially playtesting, for example, I was the person that couldn't flick to save myself. And so I was a good test for that, right? Like, okay, we need Aaron to test this, right? Because not only is he colorblind, we make sure that the, 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 the colors are okay, can't flick to save himself. So he's a good, you know, he's he's a good test bed for you know someone who is going to struggle 
with the game when they first open the box and get going. But it's interesting over time, as you do it more, like any skill, like I'm, I, I, unfortunately I can't fulfill that role anymore because I'm pretty good now. Right. So, and uh, I'm pretty, you know, you kind of get to know like the degree of control that you need to, you know, to send the pieces where you want. So it is definitely uh when people tell us sometimes, oh, I'm no good at dexterity games, you won't be good at them maybe at the start. But if you practice, and we encourage people in our rule books to practice, if you practice, you will get better and you will be able to play them. And uh, you that there, that is a skill that can be learned if you're willing to uh, to apply some effort to it. So, you know, I always just encourage people, you know, when it comes to dexterity games, keep an open mind. I mean, you know, you... Um, you know, there could be one out there that doesn't have to necessarily be from us, but, um, you know, we tend to be sort of one of the main, I guess, the main publishers of dexterity games, but there's others obviously out there. Give, 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 give one a try and, uh, who knows, be, be open-minded. You may like it. Yeah, for sure. And it's, it's funny to me because, uh, as you know, our, our first game was also a, a, a dexterity game and, right, uh, yeah. It's funny that, like you mentioned, it being a niche. But when you think about it, and this is something that I've told other people, when you think about it, the most popular games in the world, which are sports, are usually dexterity games, and those are the games that where you have that those skills um, that you need to develop. It's just that we're used, we're so used to um, board games, you know, providing that uh, Euro experience or you know being more of a a, a mental thing, but. Um, you know, games like pool or um, uh, what do you call it? Ta- not table football. That's <laughs> what we say here, but uh, foosball. Yeah, foosball. Yeah, right. Yeah. All, all, yeah. all of those um, all of those are popular games, you know. Um, but in the hobby market, it's, it is it is a niche. Now, I, I want to ask you about uh, your last project, which was Catacombs Cubes. It's a bit different uh, from the, you know, f- flicking discs and... Uh, it even has a solo mode, which which is uh, interesting for a dexterity game. Could you tell me about the just a quick sort of pitch of the project or elevator pitch? Well, Catacombs Cubes came about because um, I have a, a friend of mine who lives in Ontario, about, about an hour away from where we are. And he had a, a game that he had been developing for a number of years. And I had the opportunity to, to see it. And... I really fell in love with it, with the concept that he had come up with, because what it reminded me of was building Lego, which is one of my favorite things to do still to this day. Um, you know, every year, my my mom tends to to give me a, a Lego set for Christmas. Um, you know, so she's giving her her her. The, the young son in, in her mind and heart, you know, like a, a Lego set is something to um, enjoy doing. So um, lately, uh, just as an aside, I've been uh, exploring town Lego again, um, especially uh, uh, the fire stations and the fire trucks, because my job seems to involve putting out fires. You know, when you're running a business, you're firefighting all the time, right? You know, i got to get something done and then go over here and get something else done. So we have fire trucks now um, behind me in my office, uh, as opposed to the usual, um, uh, more like space Lego is what I was t- typically into. Or, But uh, anyway, um, Catacombs Cubes reminded me of building Lego 
So you have a plan that you had to follow for a particular type of building, say like a church or a, um, you know, a granary or um, a wizard's tower or something like that. And there's different ways that you can take these shapes that you're drafting, these nice big wooden uh, shapes, and you're putting them together. And so it's a stacking form of dexterity. And so, because there is actually some balancing involved as well. Uh, not uh, ba Balancing is not necessarily the uh, central focus, like some stacking games are. Uh, obviously, the mass market, Jenga, is, is a good example of that. You, you, you have to stack these blocks, and you, you must prevent the, the tower from falling. Um, so it, it, it's, that's not the focus. But you do take these shapes, and you do have a plan, just like a little mini Lego set. And you're expected to take that plan and look at what I have, look at my resources. And I can actually transform those resources too. So just because I've drafted these resources, there is opportunities in the game to say, okay, well, I might have got a T-shaped piece, for example, but I really just need a corner piece. And there's a way that you can actually chisel off that one side of the T-piece, if you can imagine that, and end up with that corner piece that I, that I need. And in some cases, you get to keep that uh, extra cube and in some cases you don't but that was the um that that, that was the premise behind it that was the engine if you like and then we had this uh tile laying aspect to it where if i finish my plan i get to take my completed building and add it into the town and those buildings were beautifully illustrated um by our artist, um, Dennis Martinets. This was our first time uh, working with him. I was waiting for an opportunity um, for a project that would allow Dennis and I to work together. And uh, Catacombs Cube seemed to be a, a good fit, a good um, starting point. And uh, actually, he's uh, quite close to where you are um, cause he, because he's out of Ukraine. Mm -hmm. uh, so. Um, you know, definitely in your, your part of the world. Um, so, yeah, and that, uh, you know, took us some time to develop, obviously. Um, I got involved with Ken and gave some input uh, to him, some ideas, and we, we, we shaped the game, but it was, it's a design where it would have been very easy for us to have added a lot of complexity to it. And we really wanted to keep it more family friendly um, and um, really orient it towards potentially like uh, being more of a gateway type game. So, I mean, there's still quite a bit in there, including the, the solo mode that you uh, referred to earlier. But it, it's, but we think that we struck the right balance. And I decided to situated in the, the catacombs world because um, we don't publish very many games. And when we do, it's a nice opportunity to tell a bit more of the story about catacombs in the, in the background. And that was really my purpose behind it. I mean, probably from a marketing perspective, I probably should have just said, yeah, call it something different. Catacubes were, were one of the, uh, the names that some of the backers of the Kickstarter um, uh, suggested. I thought that was a pretty good name, but I decided to just go with the um, 
put the put the catacombs branding in there because in a way for me it was telling the story of this town uh, and we have some different towns and locations now in the uh, in the in the catacombs world but it's it's a big world and i wanted to at least show how this city was was constructed so how how did they build it let's go back in time we've already gone back in time with some of the other games but let's go back in time again with this one and 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 show some of the characters show them c- c- constructing it and it's it's right there on on the board or, or rather on the box rather where you can you can see the town being constructed right you know they're actually literally making the cubes there right and some of the characters from from catacombs are there kind of in, right there on the building site putting it all together and the whole town is 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 taking shape and and of course in it's one of those unfortunate aspects in real estate that they just didn't happen to know what was underneath it so you know they they built this town they found it you know it seemed to have all of these um I- ideal uh qualities of a of a building site but then unfortunately you know who would have known that there was these caverns underneath it um these tunnels these passages and of course we go when we go down deep enough there's maybe something there that's uh you know not <laughs> you know not maybe the most uh beneficial for the for the for the dear residents of the town and uh, that of course requires some brave heroes to go and sort it out and flick some discs and you know beyond just building for example mm-hmm. so that's kind of the the genesis of the whole thing as to how that came about yeah, could you could you tell me more about um, building those worlds and and building your brand as well? Uh, because I think it's a, it's a really good thing that you've named all your um, like that, that's one aspect of it is naming all of your games catacombs so that you can set yourself apart and people immediately know that uh, kind of what to expect. Um, but could could you tell me how you how you've managed to build build your uh, brand? Well, I think. We've been very fortunate that you know, we've had people that have wanted, like like Quan Chai, for example, wanted to help contribute. So when you've got a consistent voice, a consistent looking theme, the the world building comes fairly naturally. So you know each of our games, with with the exception of of Cube so far, has had the influence of of Quan Chai's work in it, and he set the tone. For what people can expect, and it's allowed us to um, to really move around and um, and 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 explore that world, and you know, we'll hope to um, continue to uh, to do that in the future because there's, there's there's still lots to see. Mm-hmm. And how much do you think of that world building is uh, is artwork, and how much of it is um, like lore, and how much of it do you leave to the players' imaginations? Well, I think it's a it, it's a little bit of everything. Um, you know, we've got uh, the 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 way that the characters are d- depicted in Quan Chai's uh, style, but I, I've certainly developed some of the lore uh, as well, and we kind of hint at that. And, and but a big part of it, when you're especially when you're engaging in some of these dexterity games, there's there's a lot of kind of natural narrative that starts to evolve anyway. Just by virtue of the fact that you're playing the game and, oh, well, I flicked this guy and he ended up exactly where I need him to be and could imagine him, you know, charging into combat or something like that. And in, in a way, the, 
the, the, the game tells a story itself, right? Hey, remember when, you know, you pulled that amazing shot off and we, 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 we were able to beat the dragon or, or whatever. So there, I think it's really, there's all, all three, all three pillars are, are, are important and, and, and beneficial because you can use, uh, uh, catacombs, um, you know, 3E really in a, as a role playing game. And people do that. Uh, they, they, they'll take it. Uh, they'll they'll make up some some characters and things like that, and then they, they'll work in the dexterity element, almost like rolling dice. And this is something that we will explore more in the in the future. Uh, you know, it, I, I think it, over time, it, it it'll be natural that there'll be sort of like a, a, a catacomb style role playing game at some point. We'll we'll probably do it, and then but instead of dice, maybe you, there's a dexterity related. Um, skill tests that you have to do instead. Something along those lines, maybe. That sounds really uh, cool. Um, could you tell me about the, your next Kickstarter project? Um, it might already be up by the time this podcast is up. Uh, well, we've got a couple actually in um, development. Um, the, the next one will be for Catacombs Monster Pit. Uh, but we're also actively working on uh, Phantom Division, uh, which will which is a game that won't necessarily have catacombs in the title. Um, but to talk about Monster Pit, um, this is, uh, I'm hoping people feel it's a pretty special product because this will, this Kickstarter will be occurring during our 10th year of publishing games. So we're trying to uh, give people a little bit of, little bit of everything. So it's a, uh, it's a standalone uh, game, um, and there, as part of this standalone game, um, there's a there's an overworld part, if you like, right? So you play this overworld um, uh, sort of experience, and then you go into the underground, into the monster pit. You actually go into it. So first of all, you have to deal with the threat of the monster pit. Okay, and that involves heroes coming together to deal with that threat. So, okay, so now we've discovered it, right? It's it's something has crawled out of the earth, and we have a, we've got a problem here. Okay, so we have to get the defenders to the gates and hold this thing off. Okay, so now we've beaten it back. But now we have to go underground, and it's okay. So now we need some volunteers to get some torches, get some weapons and uh, proceed into the monster pit to deal with that uh, threat once and for all. And so that's uh, how the game is structured. But there's also uh, expansion content for Catacombs 3E and a solo mode too. So there's th this is how it all comes together into a, a a nice package, and we we think people will be will will find this uh, interesting, and the you know one of the versions of the game will include a double sided playmat, which will be in a nice a nice nice big one, uh, so that will you know really um, you know help immerse people in the game because we know people enjoy our. Uh, uh, using our playmats, for example. 
Yeah, I'm sure that you've uh, you've gotten them down from so much, so many uh, years of uh, finding those materials and components that work best for uh, a dexterity game. I think that's probably one of the more difficult aspects of like manufacturing. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it it it, it can be challenging. I mean, it helps to, um, you know, you you definitely have to vet your factories to ensure that they can they can do it properly, and you know, there's. Yeah, sometimes they can they can trip up with that for sure because you know you warn them and say, well, look at you know this is this is different. This is not what your normal game is, right? You know you got to be very mindful of, of of what you're getting into with this. Oh yeah, no, we can do it. Yeah, I know you always say you can do it, um, but just be mindful of it. So that's we always encourage them to be the factories that is to to understand what we're trying to achieve here um, and. Uh, you know, man, man, making something like catacombs is is not easy. That's for sure. It's not for the, it's not for the faint of heart. It's, uh, um, you know, I, based on some of the experiences we've had with various factories and in different parts of the world, um, it's it's a game that they really struggle with. That's for sure. It's, uh, you know, people, uh, you know, that they, they'll say to us, well, you know, you know why is it changing again? I don't want it to change, but if you're going every time, if you have to move to a different factory because they did something that was that you were not satisfied with, then you have to set everything up again. And if you're setting it all up again, that's a labor-intensive process. You might as well make some improvements, um, not arbitrary improvements, but if you've received some feedback about something, you might as well try to make it better. Take our wall system for example. Um, the first version of catacombs didn't have any walls. So, of course, people rightly complained, well, stuff's ending up all over the family room. You know, we're flicking these discs, and we spent half the game looking for them. Okay, so that's a problem. So with third edition, we came up with the first printing of it. We came up with our first iteration of the wall system. And um, it had cardboard pieces that fit together. Then we went to the next iteration of it. Well, it was, it had hinged pieces and plastic clips that held it together. But then we still had those troublesome hinged pieces because sometimes when they die cut them, there wasn't enough material holding it together properly. Okay, so that, that wasn't, wasn't necessarily optimal. Okay, so next version then, we were able to get rid of the hinged pieces and use a custom plastic stand so that you could actually fit them together either in a straight formation or, uh, you know, the two ends would connect um, in the middle of a cross. And so you would have effectively make a corner piece. So we're always doing our best to, you know, take the experience that we have with a particular factory and feed it into what we can do to make the product better with the next factory. Um, and, you know, and, and like I said, because we're setting it up again, you might as well make that improvement. I mean, you don't want people to feel like that they bought a product and we're sort of just iterating as we go. We're, we're not. If we could have found a, a factory that could, uh, could, could make it the game properly, we, we would have just stuck there. So what kind of problems did we have? Well, I'm not going to name names, but, um, you know, we had one factory that just misaligned sticker sheets. 
oh yeah, we can do the sticker sheets. Okay. So when you're doing, um, uh, you know, when you want to decorate a wood part, for example, you can sometimes silk screen them. Uh, you know, there's different techniques, but if you've got like over 80 discs, like in a set of catacombs, stickers are really the only economical option. Um, especially when you have our very detailed artwork too. Okay. So, but we, so we, we have to use these stickers at least where we're sitting right now when it comes to these manufacturing techniques. And in the future, maybe we can do something different, but we're, we have this investment now with the, with the line do, doing stickers. So anyway, these misaligned stickers. So, and it, and it just affected like, so many of the sets and, and it was this one particular monster, for example, that was frequently misaligned. And um, obviously that was pretty frustrating. So with the next printing of third edition, I, I almost was at the point of saying, you know what, we're going to get rid of that particular monster. Just take it out because so many, but then we knew people would be upset about that. So um, we, 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 all, we decided to keep it in. But um, so that was one. Then the other issue that we had was um, issues with, with cardboard and humidity control. So it's important in a dexterity game to have a flat surface where you're you're playing that's pretty obvious right the only problem is is that cardboard given a long enough horizon will always warp i mean you can do every humidity control technique that you want but you're going to get some degree of warping and for a lot of board games it, it doesn't really matter right i mean you know everyone gets a slightly warped board sometimes from any manufacturer you open it up oh, it has a little you know little bit of a tug on, you know, like on the opposite side, it sits flat, it's fine, no big deal. But with something like catacombs, it's very important to have it lay flat. And so this is our experience with different manufacturers with this property of cardboard where it would warp really led us to exploring neoprene mats. And the neoprene mats are far superior. And once you've played on the neoprene mats, you're really not going back to cardboard again. Um, so uh, we, 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 every time we iterate on the product, we improve, we hope that we improve the product. We try to bring the people that have supported us along with us. We're very co conscious of this. We don't take it for granted because we're very grateful for it. Um, we, we try to bring them along by offering upgrade options at a very what we hope is a very nominal cost. Now, of course, for our upgrade set for 3E that had all the, the play mats, uh, that was pretty expensive um, it, for, for us to offer that. And I don't know of any other game to date that's put six double-sided neoprene play mats in one box. I don't think such a product exists. Um, we're, we're the only one, as far as I know. Because, uh, you know, you can sometimes see products out there that have like one companion neoprene mat, for example. We've got six. And of course, there's more in, in development. And Monster Pit has a neoprene mat. And when we reissue Catacombs and Castles, our team-based um, dexterity game set in the Catacombs world, it will also have a neoprene mat. So some of the people, some of our players already have that Catacombs and Castles neoprene mat. We offered it to them as an upgrade, 
but now we're actually going to roll that upgrade into the, the main product. But of course, we have to present it a little differently. So these are all some of the the, the challenges to, to come back to your original question about, you know, the components and um, and working with the factories and that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. It's I, I think um, it's just so specific with dexterity games in general that it's um, especially with catacombs. In fact, not not just dexterity games because you know there's um, games like Flick 'Em Up and you know where, where you don't actually need a board, but with catacombs, it's uh, super important. <laughs> um, could you tell me about um, because you you've you recently started uh, publishing other designers' games. Uh, I think Catacombs Cubes is the first one where you were uh, uh, the first game where you took a, a, a design from outside of Elsewhere, right? That, that's right. Yep. Yeah. And uh, could you tell me what you kind of as expect from a designer who wants to pitch to you as a publisher? So, like, how is your publisher mind different from a designer mind? Well, we do get a fair number of people um, pitching games to us, and obviously because we're a smaller publisher we don't put out very many titles there's publishers that uh have a business model where they want to release a lot of games and see what sticks right so we we put out we put a big you know bunch of hay outside and you know we'll we'll, we'll see if we if if we have any have we have any takers on it um we tend to be a bit more focused i would say more like a Stonemeyer type approach where we would be looking to release one or two games a, a year at the most so that they have the opportunity to uh, find an audience in the in, in, in the marketplace um, so there's certain games that we just simply don't publish what are they um, they're, they're games that I'm just personally not interested in so games like dating games I, I get guys pitching those to me not interested in, in, in dating games, um, uh, party games, uh, word games. Um, th- th- these, th- th- these types of games are, um, they're, they're just too simple. There's nothing wrong with them, of course. And I do my best when people write to me about them to suggest some publishers that may be better um, f- for their design. Like, you know, just because we happen to, published games, there's a wide spectrum of games out there. And there's certain publishers that specialize in those types of games. And, and that's what they do. And they have experience with that. And they, and it has it, those types of games have their own challenges. Um, you know, we also don't really publish anything like Cards Against Humanity or anything like that. I, I, because we like to have a nice family friendly brand. Like I would, wouldn't publish our cards against humanity, for example. I mean, I get it again as an audience for that stuff, but not, not, uh, not interested. Um, and we wouldn't, uh, ever publish anything like Simon's hate, for example. Um, I get it again. There's that's, has, that's an IP. There's people that like that sort of thing, but, um, you know, I, I think our world's got enough of, um, uh, you know, this, you know, like it's, it's almost like it's our world on, on steroids. You know, if, it, if we, if we took the, the tribalism that we find across our planet and, you know, turn it up to a hundred, that's probably what it would look like. So I don't really want to encourage anything 
like that. Um, you know, we like to just keep our games situated in another world, if you like. It, it, it doesn't always have to be the catacombs world, of course, but something where people can um, feel like they have, a, they, that they can leave their daily challenges on earth and enter a new environment, have some fun, put aside the, uh, you know, worrying about the bills um, and, and just, just have some, just have some fun with their family. So that really sort of informs the type of uh, games that we would, that we would consider. So we, so we don't want anything that uh, is too a, a, adult or mature audience, like a, like a hate, for example. And we don't want anything that's too simple, um, uh, you know, like word games and dating games and, and party games, trivia games, all this, this sort of thing. So that still is a nice, um, you know, broad, broad spectrum of, uh, of, of, of ideas that, that, we can, that we can explore. And, um, you know, in terms of themes, I, I typically like themes that are either sci-fi or fantasy. I mean, you know, if someone was to approach me with like a, like a Western game, for example, I probably wouldn't do it. I mean, you, you're going to, you're typically working on a game for about one to two years minimum. And I'm not going to, uh, I'm not, I'm not going to spend two years on something that, uh, that doesn't necessarily interest me. I mean, another related example would be something like sports. People approach me about sports-style dexterity games. And again, it's got no problem with that. Um, But after some uh, reflection, it it just wasn't where my heart was in terms of doing something along those lines. You know, life's short. There's already a lot of games out there. I really just want to be focused on Putting out the games that 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 you know that, that are motivating, interesting to me personally, and those tend to be the ones that are situated in a fantasy or sci-fi theme. So you can see how, when you consider all of those points, it really restricts the number of possible games because we're now really oriented towards sci-fi and fantasy, more expert games. Certainly, dexterity games are an obvious wheelhouse of ours. So, this is where we tend to end up. So, um, so Catacombs Cubes, in a way, was was um, it, it has some expert elements to it, but it also is family friendly. So, that's really sort of more um, on the the one side of our more limited continuum, then, and then sort of a, a Catacombs Three E would be more expert. Re- require a bit more time investment to to, to to get going as sort of our more complex product. And then some of our other games fit between those two because mm-hmm. Catacombs Conquest obviously is an introductory dexterity game that uses our system. Um, and then Castles would fit somewhere between Conquest and 3. So we try to put everything on that that kind of line of complexity and we can tune those knobs once we have the theme down to really you know get the product to where we to where we want it mm-hmm. so that's that's my that's my approach to it so the bottom line is is that you know if you've got a 
um, you know, like a, a silly word design or something like that, silly word game design, um, pretty much guarantee I won't be publishing it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, um, yeah. No, it's it's really important for because mo- like most of the audience is uh, game designers, and it's I I think the main takeaway for me would be to research the publisher and what types of games they've published before, and what what whether whether your game fits. Um, but like you said, you can also give advice to um, designers where they can go to if it's not something that interests you. And I do my best to do that. Yeah, I, I don't just uh, you know close the door and say not interested. I, I do my best to think about there's other publishers out there. Okay, well, this game remind when I saw your design, it reminded me of X. These people do something like that. Go and talk to them, and and see what they uh, and and see what they say. Now, outside of uh, publishing and making games, uh, do you have time to, to to play other people's games? And uh, what what kinds of games do you play in your uh, free time? I definitely uh, have time to uh, play other people's games. And in fact, it's very important to me that I do so. Um, I'm very uh, fortunate that Ryan enjoys, um, so one of the original uh, designers of Catacombs First and Second Edition, he enjoys collecting games. Um, I I don't personally. Uh, So if I do kickstart a game, for example, um, and the, the, the game arrives... I analyze it and and give it to him uh, and let him look after it. Um, but to answer your question, I, I play a, a variety of, of of different games, um, uh, area control style games. So ones where you do have uh, what they now call negative interaction um, and player elimination. So I, I I play those types of games, but we also play a lot of Euro games too. And um, uh, some uh, card games. Um, I don't keep up as much with what's happening in the collectible card game market specifically um, because that's just not something that we really have time for. Um, I mean, I'm sure that uh, I could lay my hands on my brother's magic cards somewhere. I think they're at the office. Uh, so I could, I could dig out some magic cards, but uh, you know, we tend to play with larger groups three, four, five players, sometimes six, sometimes even seven. So no, that doesn't happen as much these days, of course. But, uh, um, you know, we're, we are de- definitely looking at, n- you know, n- new designs as they're, uh, as they're emerging. And so um, we're, we have our classic ones that we like, but then we also have the... Um, the, the the new games. So to give you some examples, uh, I recently tried Maracaibo. Uh, I've played that a couple of times. I still don't obviously have a head for the strategy yet because I'm still sort of really learning it because there's a lot to it. Um, but I, I I did enjoy my experience with that one. Uh, another one was uh, Coloma. Now that is a Wild West theme game, and we we enjoyed uh, um, pl- playing with that one. Um, we also, uh, it was a slightly older game, uh, but, uh, in, you know, older being relative, but we, we, we did play quite a bit of, uh, Tyrants of the Underdark. It was one that, uh, from Gale Force 9, we, we found that and, uh, the, you know, so, again, because we quite like the fantasy theme 
you know, we ended up uh, experimenting with that quite a bit um, uh, as a fairly contemporary um, deck builder. Um, just trying to think if there was uh, anything else. We, I, I did get the, as I mentioned before we started recording, to get the new version of Struggle of Empires in, but we haven't had the opportunity to try it yet. So I'd like to take a look at some of the improvements they've made with that. Looking forward to giving that one um, a, a go. Um, and, oh yeah, that's right. I've only played one game of it so far, but uh, um, played another game actually as a Eastern European theme, uh, Rurik. Mm-hmm. Uh, don't remember the publisher, uh, but that was one of their first games, I think. And you know, that, that was uh, uh, interesting to, to see how they um, developed this particular action selection uh, mechanic. So always like, always like looking around and, and, and seeing um, what people are doing, because obviously there's a, there's a lot of innovation in, in, in the hobby. And, uh, you know, Ryan tends to, 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 to buy the stuff that, um, that interests him, that he, that he thinks will interest the group. And, uh, you know, he does a lot of research. So if it, um, if it makes it to our gaming group's table, it's got to have something different or interesting or innovative or something that's caught his eye, um, you know, for us to, uh, to take the time to, to, to play with it. So all all of those games that um, uh, all of those games that I mentioned are all uh, in- interested, interesting, and, and worth worth checking out if you think that they would work for your group. Yeah, uh, my final question uh, for you, because we're kind of <clears throat> towards the end, uh, would be uh, sure. what I usually ask uh, most designers and publishers I have on here is. Uh, what would what would your advice be to someone who's just getting into um, the industry, um, whether they want to become a publisher or a um, game designer? What would be your advice towards them? Well, uh, for um, becoming a publisher, uh, the advice is very simple: don't do it uh, because uh, it, it's very, um, very, it's very, com- very complex, and uh, you've got to be prepared to uh, wear a lot of different hats. I mean, you know, people think, oh, you're you're game publisher. That's cool. You're just playing around with games all day. Nothing could be further from the truth. Um, In in fact, uh, what you're really doing is, um, you know, understanding your supply chain, you're developing your relationships with your, your, your printing partners, uh, you're looking to promote what you're working on next, and you're just dealing with the the, the boring stuff, right? Um, you know, checking your bank account regularly, you know, dealing with all of your accounts payable, you know, making sure that you have all of your uh, your, your your vouchers for your accountant, uh, dealing with your taxes, um, ensuring that uh, that you're in compliance uh, in our more complex world. You know, you you know, you've got to deal with your um, uh, you know your log- your, your re- the requirements your logistics partners might have, you know TSCA declarations, for example. And if that sounds boring to you, you probably shouldn't be doing it. Um, d- 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 designers, um, I-, I think it's uh, I think it's best to um, t- to get a foothold in the industry first, without necessarily. Um, 
worrying about um, the, the the compensation side of things. Um, it it is possible to make a living being a game designer. There's prominent industry examples of this, but you're not going to do it with your first game because if you're an unknown designer, a publisher will probably be fairly conservative with 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 a first time designer's game. Uh, You know, they'll probably print a, a few thousand of them, um, maybe less. They might even just go right to, say, your traditional minimum order quantity and put it out there and market it, one would hope, and see how it does. Well, your royalty rate on that is some pocket money, um, you know, to, uh, you know, maybe invest in some equipment and things of that nature, but not necessarily going to be enough that's going to sustain you, okay, as a a designer full-time. So it's a very incremental process. And, uh, you know, and I think there's a fair bit of luck involved as well. There's a a right place, right time element to it. Because, uh, you know, how some publishers just, they just don't necessarily know how well things are going to do. I release a game and suddenly it just takes off. Well, there may have been five other games that were equally as good as that one from an artwork perspective, design perspective, rulebook presentation perspective, even the pedigree of the designer. And, you know, there's sometimes just these games that happen to uh, capture the zeitgeist, if you like, Um, like Terraforming Mars, for example, seems to have just come out of nowhere. Just came out of nowhere and became very, very popular. Um, and who could have really anticipated that? Um, you know, what was the formula behind the success of Terraforming Mars? I don't know the answer to that question, but it seems to have just come from out of nowhere and is and it's had some staying power too, right? I mean, it's still, um, you know, we work with uh, with with Schwerkraft in Germany. Uh, they they localize the German language version of our games, for example, and. Terraforming Mars is one of their main, they, they, they localize catacombs, but also Terraforming Mars. It's their main, main product in a lot of ways. So you just don't know, um, you know, whether you've got some lightning in, in the bottle with your design. It, it's hard to say. Uh, you could have a fantastic design and it just doesn't really perform in the way that you expect. Another one comes from out, almost from out of nowhere. First time designer. And you know we, we we've got a rocket to Mars almost literally, in terms of in terms of sales. So this is uh, this is what I think is very interesting about this industry. There's there's a lot of um, a lot like uh, really oil exploration. You just don't know when you're going to have that big strike. You know we hit oil against all odds, and we've got a gusher here, right? And it's just you know suddenly we can't print enough of these things. And other ones, yeah, there's oil. It, it's doing okay. It's it's fine. Um, so it, it's it's very very hard to predict. And so this is how obviously this is what drives some publishers to say, okay, well let's maximize our chance of finding a gusher. We have the financial resources to be able to just promote a whole load of product, and we'll see if there's a needle in the haystack somewhere. But we don't have the resources to do that, so we have to be more selective. 
And this is how we have, you know, we do tend to integrate it in with some of our existing properties. And we are looking to develop new ones as well with our upcoming Phantom Division game, for example. Um, but I, I think the, the, the takeaway advice is publisher, really think hard. Um, I mean, if you just happen to fall into a whole load of money and you want to spend some, invest in some of that and figuring out how to make games, like, okay, well, that's, that's fine. But um, if you're just looking to quit your day job and publish games tomorrow, I'd say, well, think about that. It's a, uh, you know, there's a lot of publishers out there. Some of them, some of them are extremely well capitalized. Um, you know, deep pockets. You're going up against those guys, right? All the every day. That's how we really appreciate our um, supporters, our customers, keeping us in business, keeping us in the game. Um, and, and from the designer side just have a very modest expectations. Look to get your game published first by a reputable publisher um, and hope that there's some longevity to it and some, and some staying power. But even just a single printing, just to get your name out there, and even if it, it's not a terraforming Mars, for example, but um, it at least allows you to say, well, I've, I've done something in the industry. I've got a published game. Maybe you haven't heard of it. Well, there's a lot of games coming out. Well, that's okay. But at least it starts that process. And then you learn, um, you know, wh what's, what's required. I'm working with a designer right now where he wanted to put 40 of a particular component into a game. And I said to him, respectfully, well, that's going to be pretty challenging from a, from a budget perspective. So even just working with the, the publishers, the new designer to understand some of the financial constraints, you know, you can't just take 40 of, of, of a particular, in this case, fairly expensive custom component and just saying, oh yeah, you know, we're, we're going to put 40 of those in the box. I, and so I had to invite him to think about it. Yeah. You've got a kernel of a good idea here, but we have to cut these numbers down to make this a financially feasible product. And so this is another thing that's important for um, designers to understand. When you're starting out, you've got a virtual space. You can take whatever you want off the shelf. I can get five game boards here. I can get 100 meeples over there, 50 wood cubes over here, and I can put them all together. I got my prototype, and I'm carrying it around, and I'm showing it to people. Great. Okay. But each one of those things has a cost, every one of them. There's tooling costs, there are fixed costs, um, and then of course the actual production costs. And it get, you know, and there's complexity too. Oh, I'm gonna have the whole color, the whole spectrum of the rainbow in my game, for example. Well, colors are challenging, right? Matching colors, matching colors between print and wood. Uh, you know, we saw that in catacombs cubes, for example, right? You know, the wood, the, there was a, the way the blue was reproduced on the tile was different from the way that the blue was reproduced on the punch board. Right. And so these, these are things, this is something that we would have preferred to have optimized. Right. Um, and it was, it was, there was a, it was basically an, a minor calibration issue that, that occurred. Um, but these are all things, but this can affect your design if you've got the whole rainbow of colors. So it, it's, it's, it, my point is, very, you know, printing this, printing these games, a very, very complex process. There's a lot of, engineering and, and t technical elements in it. 
And it's easy to, when you look at a well-produced game and say, oh yeah, you know, like they just kind of grab things and, you know, they, they curated the thing, they put it in there. Well, everything that's in there is a cost. And, you know, it, it's a good idea to be mindful of that. If you can come to a publisher with a, a minimal, minimum viable product, meaning the minimal components that just express the interesting idea, then that's, uh, that, that, that's better. Um, because it allows us to, to you know, to, to, to look at the game and consider it and say, okay, yeah, as a first time designer, for example, with this small amount of components, we could potentially take a chance on it and put it into production and not break the bank, um, you know, on a, on a very complex, elaborate design. So that's, that's my th- you know, current thinking on that front anyway. Thank you so much for uh, coming on the podcast. It was just amazing to talk to you. Well, yeah. Well, thanks for having me. And um, of course, uh, uh, check out uh, our upcoming projects, um, Catacombs Monster Pit, um, maybe on Kickstarter by the time you hear this. But uh, definitely next year, look for Phantom Division, um, which is our new sci-fi game that's coming that's got uh, um, you know a lot of strategy, but some dexterity in there as well. 